You're listening to the Meditation and Attachment Podcast with George Haas. For more information, please visit our website at www.metagroup.org. That's www.m-e-t-t-a-g-r-o-u-p.org. So welcome everybody. This is Meditation uh, and Attachment, deepening your practice. It's September 23rd, 2021 at 7.37 p.m. Uh, Pacific Daylight Time, and we've been talking for the last couple of weeks about exploring uh, for meaningfulness. And I was talking about how um, attachment conditioning affects the capacity to explore. And uh, I think that we talked about that enough that we might then begin to talk about what's meaningful. What is the nature of the human experience? What is the nature of this lifetime that you're in? What is beyond the limited sense of identity, the limited sense of self? And how do you touch that into the nature of the of beingness of the, of the spirit of everything? And is that actually the meaningfulness that we're uh, intended to be pursuing rather than, uh, say, uh, other things that might uh, come up and grab our attention? I think in some sense, meaningfulness is in one end and a distraction at the other. Often the pursuit of pleasure is in that process of distraction. One of the difficulties about talking about the meaningfulness that comes from uh, spiritual investigation is that uh, we often try to engage the experience of the self and explain it to the experience of self in such a way that the self can understand it. And I think often um, uh, it's, you know, it's so often described as wordless or timeless or all of these uh, different concepts which the self doesn't really adapt to very well. And then when you're in the state where the self isn't actually active, um, but you're still in awareness and present, uh, the experience of it then would have to be translated into words that then the sense of self uh, could understand. So we're often talking about these things in descriptions that uh, don't really uh, make sense. I often tell a story about the pursuit of uh, meaning in a way uh, that is about preferences. Um, What are you doing with this life that you have? understanding that in this life that we have, we have the, uh, particularly when you're in a householder position, these basic uh, householder tasks to perform. Uh, How do you keep a roof over your head? You know, the basic things, food, shelter, clothing, medicine. In the commerce system that we have, uh, often we are trading uh, time for resources. 
and uh, often uh, the activities that we were able to, uh, to engage in to produce those resources uh, don't have so much meaning. They're uh, what we would call a secondary exploration where you pursue uh, the resources that you need then to have a primary uh, exploration. Uh, one of the things that I noticed about uh, that kind of activity, even though I did intend to have a primary exploration, the, uh, the consumption of energy in order to do the secondary exploration to get the resources to do the primary exploration took most of my most of my ability and the, the primary exploration became secondary if I was able to do it at all. So part of this is a beginning to reorder the, the way that you want to live so that you can focus on things that have meaning. And the other thing about our culture is that uh, remuneration isn't particularly even, and some things are, are remunerated at a greater rate than other things. Uh, and what happens to you if the things that you find really meaningful are not very well paid? How do you manage that? Do you then uh, shrink down or truncate the, the, the kind of life that you can lead? Um, and people are also valued differently in our culture. It's one of the things I notice about in the work that I do is that anyone who isn't white has, a, has an impact from the racist uh, nature of our culture. It's, a, it's like an expense that uh, people who are not, um, who are white don't have. I mean, obviously the well, whiteness is not remunerated the same either. Um, when I got uh, sober in 1978, and I really didn't know what to do, uh, my uh, first sponsor said to me, well, what kind of apples do you like? And I said, I don't really like apples. They're hard and sour. And he said, well, Granny Smith's are, but there's a lot of different kinds of apples. What other kinds of apples do you like? But I didn't really have a sense of other apples. Um, and so he sent me to the Korean deli to get a Granny Smith and one other apple and eat them both. And then uh, the next day I go back and buy two more apples, the one I liked better and the next one in the line. At that time, there was uh, 26 varieties of apples at the Korean deli on the corner. And at the end of that process, I came to this understanding that actually gala apples were the thing for me. Um, and I still like them, and I probably still have a couple in the fridge, uh, you know, what is it, 45 years later. But whether or not I eat an apple in a particular day doesn't really um, drive the sense of meaningfulness I have. It's a kind of pleasant, pleasant preference. Uh, and so we might have to go a little bit deeper into the things that have meaning and that uh, lead us uh, uh, along the path of our lives. Um, I notice that uh, one of the things that I find really meaningful are relationships. Uh, and I have uh, preferences of people. Uh, and, uh, um, and when I find uh, somebody I really have a strong preference for, I like to put a lot of energy into the relationship. And so I 
can have it available to me. And then that connection, that sense of feeling seen and known by somebody else has a lot of meaning. And it also uh, creates a base to explore into things that have uh, meaning. Um, Ideas are also something that have meaning for me, and my practice of meditation has meaning for me, and the uh, sense of coming into this place of uh, uh, being connected to the experience of being alive has a lot of meaning. But it doesn't um, translate into activities often it's it's simply the a way of being able to be in this vibratory energy of being alive uh, and experiencing the moment as it unfolds um, I think that um, the way that Dan described it is to touching into the sacredness of the experience of being alive and as you transform your view uh, beginning to recognize in each moment uh, the sacredness of, of this experience of being alive and experiencing each moment in this this uh, container of sacredness so that what does that mean does sacredness mean that this this extraordinarily precious moment that you're in can you touch into that experience of it and if you can't what is it that prevents you from being able to touch into that and then how do you pull out and clear away those obscurations so that you can see actually what's there the the metaphor is often that the sun is shining and it's continuously shining and that if you're not aware of it shining then um, the clouds have obscured uh, the sunlight but it doesn't mean that the sunlight isn't there if you could remove the clouds and touch into it What I find interesting about uh, trying to convey this in language and in the, the experience of a self is that um, I have a feeling sense of it. And I have the experience of abiding in that place with no urgency to do anything else. the moments last for periods of time and then the moment seems to end and then it's the next thing that unfolds this movement back and forth um, I was talking to Dan about this and I was noticing that I was getting irritated by the ordinariness of the self-experience arising and taking me out of the uh, that sense of uh, limitless sacredness and 
which is when he said, no preference, no preference. <laughs> so uh, I remember, of course, you know, well, I don't know how long ago, a decade ago, Shinzen basically saying the same thing. You come in and out of self, and there's no preference for one or the other. There's no inhibition in the flow of one or another. And I remember sitting at Mount Baldy listening to Sasaki Roshi say, I'm, my job as a meditation teacher is essentially to be a travel agent, taking you effortlessly from heaven to hell. Uh, that sense of coming and going, uh, fixating, flowing, fixating, flowing. So is that enough, that, that a definition of what's meaningful? And then how do you practice it in a way that actually you, you can get there? You may have noticed in our culture, the current rage is uh, psychedelic uh, psychedelics. Um, I'm old enough actually to remember the last time <laughs> that was all the rage. <laughs> And, and I listened to the descriptions of it, and, the, and people have these transcendent experiences, uh, depending on whether they're taking heroic doses, uh, which I also think of as a, as a uh, it's very pleasant uh, way of thinking about it. Um, <clears throat> and I was uh, talking about this, and you sort of, you take this heroic dose, and you come into this place of transcendence and you have you touch into the sacred nature of things and then you come out of it of course you don't have real agency to come back and, uh, you're not flowing in and out of this you're not uh, fixating unfixating fixating unfixating um, and um, one of my um, friends uh, sent me a note that said that's true of everything except for the smoking toad which I have not done uh, personally, but I thought that that was also hilarious. Um, I'm pretty sure, uh, I'm, I'm assuming that if it gets really popular, the toad itself will become endangered. <laughs> and I think that I have a, a bias toward actually just practicing in a way that you can come into that place of being able to come and go. In and, in and out of that sacredness or uh, I don't have the experience of just being in the sacred place the whole time and then just coming in and out of that uh, self-experience uh, one of my students said to me the other day uh, I don't mean this in a bad way uh, George but you've lost your edge which I thought also was really funny. She said that, that, that the practice that you're doing has softened you, uh, and uh, it's easier to be with you than it used to be. Um, so this is it. Meaningfulness is to touch into the sacred nature of this uh, human experience, and how do you uh, come into that place where that's what you can do and then can you then 
um, sustain that sense of sacredness continuously without getting trapped or confined to uh, a contractive experience of self. And then it doesn't matter so much what the activity is. Maybe you're doing the dishes or you're tidying up the house or you're uh, arranging to talk to someone and you're in that, that place where it's uh, rich in meaning. There's a shift. Uh, bodhicitta is often the term the heart breaks open and all of a sudden you're not confined to the pursuits that are satisfying to the sense of uh, self. Uh, you see yourself in this community of people, the community of the world, and your actions are oriented more toward that. I think that this might be quite useful in the world that we live in because uh, uh, these pursuits of uh, enrichment and these pursuits of uh, social status and uh, power, um, particularly with the population uh, where it is, are taxing the planet to the point that uh, the shifts that are coming are going to be quite uh, difficult. Um, I'm a fan of uh, Thomas uh, Piketty, and he's an economist. And one of the things that I thought was interesting about his uh, latest book, um, Capitalism and Ideology, was uh, the dilemma the world is facing as the climate changes and the, the reliance on monoculture for growing enough food for all of us is that if there's a three degree, say, change in the temperature, which it's likely that we're going to have, the way that we've been uh, growing all of this food isn't going to uh, survive the, the, the climate change. And there's going to be uh, a uh, interruption of the food supply. And the West is actually pretty well set up to manage that. Um, it takes 70 portions of grain to create one portion of meat. And the population in Western Europe and North America is, uh, which has a land mass equivalent to, say, India and uh, Asia, China, um, has a third of the population. And it's largely in his thinking because we have a meat-centric diet, and so there's less food, so the population has expanded. At a slower pace than in uh, India or China, which was largely vegetarian. What that means, of course, is that when the food supply contracts, the West simply has to switch to a plant based diet in order to have enough food to accommodate the population. But the parts of the world that are already vegetarian will not be able to switch and their food supply is going to be uh, much more dire than our food supply. How do we then embrace this uh, as, a, as a, a, a planet? Um, the other thing that you may have read in uh, understanding climate change is that um, 
what about 20% of the planet is going to become uninhabitable because of the temperature rise, which is mainly the equator, and that those people are going to have to move north. And so you have all of these refugees that are already uh, engaged. I think I saw uh, in uh, Weiwei's uh, movie about refugees that there's currently 68 million people who are refugees moving. What happens when 20% uh, of the planet is uninhabitable and it's not 68 million people, but a billion people that are needing to move and that the food supply is taxed to the point that it's going to be difficult? What are we going to do? Um, we built a wall along the border. <laughs> A 30-foot wall. Do you think that a 30-foot wall is going to keep 15 million people from coming in when there's no place for them to go? How do you make sense of that? What meaning do you derive from our collective actions that are creating a situation in the world? And how then do we respond to that? moving in and out of the fixated sense of self into this sacredness. How do we come into this place of sacredness so that we can see that these things are happening and that we can then respond to them in a way that is useful? Part of the climate change, of course, is sea level rise. And so uh, I was reading in the New York Times that in this country, there's going to be 18 million refugees based on the loss of uh, uh, property because of the sea level rising. So even if we build a wall all the way around the whole country, we still have 18 million refugees inside of the wall that we're going to have to attend to in some way. And can we reorient ourselves in, in a way that that um, isn't going to be so brutal? So when I think about that pursuit of a spiritual, a spiritual life, and a touching into the nature of, of that uh, sacredness, that spirit. I also come back into this body that lives in this uh, country that is a citizen of this country and uh, the responsibilities that come with that. And, and um, the sense of that. Uh, we're in the middle of a pandemic. You may have been affected by that. Um, uh, and that that sense of brutality is, is uh, there in uh, uh, simply allowing the course of this without taking these simple preventative actions and uh, 
I was reading in the paper today that Alaska, uh, of all of the states, um, has the, the, the highest level of inf infection with the Delta variant and uh, the whole healthcare system is collapsing and, and the governor still says that it, it isn't a situation that warrants the response that would require any measures to curtail the uh, pandemic. No masks, no uh, quarantines, no vaccines. And I have a really hard time making sense of that. Why wouldn't we want to do everything to preserve this precious, sacred life that we're experiencing, knowing that it's so temporary? And what is that that uh, view that it is that that to me appears to be indifferent, without compassion? And then how do you hold a compassionate view of somebody that uh, you experience as being without compassion and engaged in activities that are actively harming? How do you make meaning out of that? For yourself, so that you're engaged in uh, an ethical response So my experience of that is that is to to when the uh, experience of that limited identity overheats and becomes too painful to simply move out into that expansive spirit space and then flow back into the sense of self so that actions can be taken that that are useful and then if it heats up too much moving out into this uh, expansiveness. So I think that that's all I want to say about this. Um, if your practice isn't at the place where you, you can move into that and touch into that sense of sacredness and, it's not, and, uh, and that it's not there most of the time, then uh, focus where your practice is and begin to develop that uh, capacity um, in uh, I guess the way that I like to talk about it is the view can you understand what a view is uh, can you uh, discern one view from another do you have agency in causing the view that you want and can you sustain a view um, in the uh, metta jhana practice we are really using views as an object of meditation so that you can begin to have a sensitivity to what a view is then how to maintain it um the um whoops Um, when we look at it through the attachment lens, obviously the 
the uh, uh, people that have a sense of view, a sense of uh, being able to think about uh, thinking, uh, metacognition, it comes from the, the experience of the caregiver inquiring about what your internal experience is so that you look inward and then you develop the capacity to describe what that experience is so that you can uh, in each moment recognize it and then communicate it. And if that also creates this process of where you understand what your view is and then you understand how to communicate it and you understand that the other person has a view that then or an experience where they can take that in and you have some sense about how that lands, which creates this dimension of you and the other person and the interaction between it. In the Satipatthana Sutta, we call that mindfulness of inside, mindfulness of outside, and mindfulness of inside and out, that there's a reaction that you have in experiencing someone else and someone else has a, a reaction in experiencing you and you can track that. Christian? I think that the metacognition is, that's something that kind of gets embedded. Or that's something you really have to consciously practice. When you lose skill, do you think? I'm having a little trouble understanding you. Uh, you can't hear me or? So, uh, yeah, a little louder, please. Oh, sorry. Um, I'm wondering if the metacognition, can you hear me now? Yeah. Uh, the metacognition, is that something that you have to consciously keep practicing? Or is that like, is that something that gets sort of embedded or you lose it? Um, well, I think that if you get stressed, it, it collapses, right? It's cognitive. So your co cognitive function uh, is present when you're in good, uh, uh, sort of an even balanced state. And if there's a lot of stressors, it, it, it collapses uh, and so that you don't have it. And then when you come back into balance, it returns. But this, the, the capacity to do it is something that you can develop and uh, train. Is that a good answer? George, don't we want to have better metacognition during stressful situations? Why did nature do this to us? <laughs> we do want to have that. And so then we would also be talking about emotional regulation skills so that you don't get completely dysregulated so that your cognitive function collapses. All of that can be trained. Um, Um, but why don't we do some practice uh, and then uh, I'm going to give you a choice. Do you want to work on the Vipassana side of things, looking at uh, um, um, that aspect, or do you want to work on the meta side, uh, looking at views? Meta? <laughs> Everybody in favor of Meta? Everybody in favor of Vipassana? Meta wins. So uh, go ahead and settle in, um, and I will be right back. <clears throat> uh, 
So any comments or questions about uh, the practice we did? Ah, I forgot to use the other microphone, I see. Um, so thanks for practicing. What's coming up here is uh, in October, we have a level one, of, uh, three weekends, um, two in October, one in November. There are four places left in the year-end retreat. If you want to come to that, it's on the website. We're going to start another level two in January. And we're going to do a, a meditation and addiction uh, retreat uh, in February. That's what's coming up, so take a look at that on the website. Thank you for coming. Uh, I offer the teaching freely, but I do hope you'll make a donation. There's a link to do that on the website. Any amount is appreciated. It helps support me and also the work that Metagroup is doing. Uh, thank you for coming, and we'll see you soon, I hope. Bye now.